Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where we play the thrilling game of guess the SaaS subscription cost, where the rules are made up and the points don't matter because it's all going to change next quarter anyway. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you absolutely love. Today, we revisit the old age conundrum of product pricing. It's like a a Pandora's box that when open can either shower prosperity or unleash peril, or sometimes a little of both. It's a delicate dance, really, between numbers, perception, and value. And in the rapidly evolving SaaS universe, this dance becomes even more intricate. And if you read my book, you know how great I am at dancing. And and if you haven't, I refer to it as my kryptonite in the chapter called Dancing in the Land of Lost Opportunity. Uh, You probably guessed it by the cover. It's not your typical business book. But the price of anything from a masterfully made cup of coffee to the most complex software isn't just determined by costs or margins. It's a measure of the value perceived by the customer. And you mix in a a little pinch of market dynamics, a dash of competition, and a hearty spoonful of your brand's unique offering. And that's a fancy way of saying that price is all made up. Uh, Yeah, Is there a magic formula to it? Luke Holman wrote a book, and it's a fantastic book. One of the best books I've read on pricing. And he's got some things in there that are, are just absolute gold. Uh, But at the end of the day, pricing really is made up. It's all about perceived value. There's always a temptation to just mirror a competitor's pricing model. I mean, after all, they seem successful, right? But here's the catch. Their success is a cocktail of their unique value, customer understanding, and yes, their pricing model. It's a cocktail that is uniquely theirs and may not quench your business's thirst for success or be the right flavor for your ideal clients. Back in the early days, you know, before SaaS even existed, Salesforce started, and they didn't mimic the existing software licensing models. Now, they pioneered a subscription model, which is a SaaS industry standard today. I mean, they really invented the whole SaaS model in itself. And that was in tune with their unique value proposition, a customer relationship management solution that was not just powerful, but also accessible and affordable. And so in the early days, they didn't go after the the giant companies. They were really going after kind of the, the next tier down. And so it was something that's accessible, affordable. We didn't have to drop you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you remember something like Siebel, I mean, they were really high end and, and price like it as well. And a lot of companies really needed what they have, but couldn't afford it. And Salesforce slid right in there and were able to just nail that market. So the innovative pricing model complemented by their cloud-based solution just completely revolutionized the CRM industry. And it's taken, I don't know, 20 some odd years, but that fundamentally blew up software pricing models. If we look at where they were 20 years ago and today, the pricing models that existed, Salesforce and the SaaS model has just obliterated them. I mean, nobody goes out like, can I buy an enterprise license? Can I give you half a million dollars right now for an enterprise license? You just don't see that out there. Now we're seeing a big shift to usage-based pricing, which is really interesting. We've kind of gone and had a a big market shift, and now we've got uh, another one that's really happened over the past few years. And and we'll continue to see that evolve for sure. Uh, We actually did usage-based pricing at Intelligent Contacts 10-plus years ago because it was disruptive. You know, zero charge for seats. Like, are you crazy? Uh, But it started conversations, because when we submitted proposals or we would send over, you know, our thing and they would try and compare them, there was no box to put it in. I mean, they had to call us and had to talk to us because it was just ridiculous. You know, our zero versus $150 a seat was like, what? And, and they didn't know what to do with that. It was too good to be true, except that it wasn't. And that's what we're looking for is that huge perceived value for your organization. And every price, every value is perceived. 
nothing in the world has actual value. Diamonds, gold, it's all perceived. I mean, you think, you know, those, those things are really valuable, but the value is in the mind of the buyer. We think gold is valuable because we assign value to it. It's perceived that way. Is it really worth anything? It's, it's a metal and we can make some stuff with it. But value is assigned in the mind of your ideal client. And there's a chapter about that in the book as well. And I want that perceived value of your SaaS to be absolutely off the charts. I want your ideal client's minds blown so that they have to talk to you because it's so good to be true, except it isn't. And, and that's just a great, great thing. When they're engaging, they're like, this is, this is so awesome. This is way too good to be true. And you're like, this is the real deal. And that perceived value is one element that translates into premium valuation for your business. Pricing is not just about costs or competitors. It's about understanding your clients, conveying the unique value you bring, and being brave enough to chart your own course, not just copy somebody else's pricing model or copy somebody else's compensation model. This is not a follow the leader kind of game. That's not what entrepreneurship is. It's more like painting a masterpiece where you decide the true value of your art. If you want to skyrocket your perceived value, check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group. Get time-tested principles, growth tools, frameworks, and map out a plan to accelerate your SaaS business from seven to eight to nine figures. Learn to see your business the way an investor VC or private equity would in order to build in premium valuation. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins, set new revenue records, and drive your business instead of your business driving you. Supercharge your SaaS growth engine at championleadership.com. Our founder on Tuesday was Dan Fernandez, co-founder of multiple SaaS platforms, including SoStock.com and Thomason.com. He spent 15 years managing and working with overseas coding teams with stellar results. It's a great conversation about how to effectively communicate and manage outsource or internal remote teams and get the job done. Our expert guest last week, last Thursday, was Z Jeremick, founder and CEO of Mass Engines. Z is a master revenue mechanic and all about building revenue growth engines for SaaS companies to harness the full power of existing marketing and sales investments. Not buying a whole bunch of new stuff, use what you got and make it work really, really well. So the episode will certainly add horsepower to your sales machine. So if you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. It's really, really good tips there. My guest this week is Rachel Perinello, a principal at the Alexander Group. She is a leader in the firm's sales compensation, media sales, and technology practices. In this role, Rachel delivers sales compensation expertise for clients and directs firm sales compensation IP and benchmarking methodology. Rachel has authored several articles and white papers, including How Revenue Planning Drives Sales Compensation Success. And that is a great article. You've got to get a hold of that one. Welcome someone who drives profitable growth through alignment. Rachel Perinello. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. Well, today's topic is all about sales compensation. And I think sales hires are one of the hardest things to do. And then once you get them in, how do we keep them motivated enough to, to do the work, but not overpay, but not underpay? I mean, it's a, it's a crazy thing that we have to balance. So you would love to hear you know, your insights what are the things that, that you've seen that have, uh, you know, one, worked really well in sales compensation? Then we'll talk about some of the mistakes. Sure. Yeah. So um, the best design sales compensation plans are ones that are market competitive, aligned to your strategy, um, are motivational, right? So people can achieve their goals um, and um, are well communicated. So those are kind of like some of the key tenets I think about when I think about a sales compensation plan. It's really interesting how you talked about it being aligned with the, the goals. And I see that in kind of two buckets. One is the company goals. So things that, that we want right. to accomplish. And the other is the reps. And what is it that's really going to motivate them? You know, what, what's their big why in this equation? So how does that compensation fit into both of those? 
Yeah, um, you're, you're spot on, Jeff. It has to be a win-win. So obviously, uh, companies got growth goals they need to achieve. And so the sales compensation plan needs to align to those growth goals, whether they be product focus or just overall, um, overall total revenue growth or whatnot. But from a seller standpoint, they want to make sure that their pay is market competitive. They want to make sure that their upside opportunity is market competitive or even above market, right? So that's a nice way to attract and um, retain employees. If you can have a pay philosophy that says we pay above market um, at even the OTE levels or TTC levels, and then obviously the, the upside opportunity. Um, and I think that um, the third thing is just making sure that the goals that you set, um, the criteria within which the pay is calculated are set in a way that they're achievable, right? Um, we need to make sure that they're they're not just a walk uh, a walk in the park, um, it, particularly from a company financial standpoint, because then you're right. way overpaying everybody. Um, and sometimes that does happen. I've seen it. Um, but you want to make sure that, it, you know, a seller can actually achieve it. If, if they don't see um, the opportunity, then they're going to just um, tune out and start looking for another job. I think you're right about that. It, I think it's pretty rare to have salespeople say it's too easy. I think a lot of times <laughs> the companies err on the other side and make it just so impossible yeah, to, to achieve and, those goals. Yeah, we've seen that um, definitely in the technology sector. So one of the data points that we track is what percent of your sellers are achieving their quota. And um, <clears throat> and we um, it's been tracking very low, unfortunately, in the last five or six years. It's around thirty to forty percent of sellers wow. are achieving their quota. Um, the the philosophy that we would recommend is that at least half or more of your people are achieving quota because they want you want um, people participating in the upside of the plan, and therefore that means that the the goals and the quotas you set for them are, like I said, realistic and achievable. And therefore, you as a company will hit your number if you know enough of your folks are hitting their number. So, um, so interesting enough. And one of the reasons why I think there's been a low what I call participation rate, right, participating in the upside of the plan, is because I believe that a lot of these um, these uh, startup companies, you've got investors and founders and folks just putting really like they, they feel like they've got the next snowflake, right? right. And they put these really <laughs> aggressive top-down goals, aggressive goals on these firms and expecting them to grow by such a high percent. And then they have to allocate that down to the sales force. And that means they have to double or triple their sales force of and whatnot. And, and then you've got a lot of um, ramping people. Uh, you've got, um, you know, people that, you know, um, you know, it takes a while for them to ramp up to be able to hit, hit their goals. Um, so it becomes quite a challenge. So that being said, in our last iteration of our database, it did go up to, um, it was somewhere in the 35%, depending on which cohort we're looking at, um, pure subscription versus hybrid companies, et cetera, and different phases of growth. Um, but our latest iteration, it went back up to like 40% from 35%. Um, but again, best practice is 50 to 60% of your folks achieving quota. Wow. Yeah, that, that's pretty scary. But I, like I said at the beginning, I think sales hires are very difficult to make. And, and yes. you probably do have you know investors putting money in and, and giving a, a mandate of here's what the goal is. Or maybe that was in the pitch deck. You know, here, here's what the hockey stick looks like. And now, you know, we're yes. going to go try and make it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Although that's changing as we speak with this latest kind of the, with the market trends going on right now. It's no longer all about growth. It's about profitable growth. So um, definitely a, um, a big focus on profitability these days. Which I think makes perfect sense. Fundamentals matter. Somewhere yes. along the way, we, we forgot that. Yes. You know, it's, we, we're here to make money, not just spend, <laughs> yeah. spend, spend and, and, and grow right. because it, it's not sustainable. So true. So true. Yeah. Well, as we look at sales, it, it's one thing to kind of step back and say, you know, we're, this is sales compensation. And, and as leaders, a lot of times we look at it as a single bucket, but sales mm -hmm. is not one bucket. There are different roles uh, within different roles, responsibilities, different jobs. Yes. And so tell me a little bit about how you see that. And, you know, what are those jobs and how do, how do we clarify the roles around them? Um, right. So um, we use um, TSAI uh, came out with this uh, format called Layer, Land, um, Adopt, Expand, Renew. 
Um, so very common in any, uh, you know, when you're thinking about recurring revenue, it's not about sell once and walk away and then sell another time. Um, so you have to think about the ongoing relationship you have with your customer over the life um, lifetime of the customer. We added the I at the beginning, um, identify, you know, with the lead gen STR type of role. So we call it the I layer, um, identify, land, adopt, expand, renew. Um, and so one of the things we do up front when we work with our, our customers is we will roll, we'll, we'll spell that out and then, and then identify which jobs, identify which jobs are responsible for each of those, what we call motions. Um, because some people will call it a sales process, but I don't think of it as a process because we, the, the process isn't linear anymore. Right. right. Um, um, and if you're in a consumption model, I would argue, you know, consumption pricing model, I would argue that you're adopt your renew and your expansion are all happening at the same time. Right. Um, <laughs> that makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. Whereas in subscription, maybe one of those happens before the other. Um, so, um, and then I would get even more detailed. So for example, take expansion, there's multiple expansion plays. So you could do, you know, sell more, um, user, you know, have more users, um, you know, you know, more, uh, just more people using your product, but, you know, depending on your pricing model, right. um, or you might be cross-selling, right. So cross-selling a new product to your current customer. Um, and then the lot, the third one, the more challenging one, that's a lot like a new logo sale is actually going to be going out to new departments or new business units within that company. So those are all different sales, um, expansion motions. And so laying that out, because sometimes what you'll find is that we have our core seller, our account executive is focusing on the new logo, the new department, the cross sell, but we can actually maybe offload, you know, hey, the customer grew and they need to add 100 users. We can maybe offload that to our customer success or renewal rep and say, hey, you can you can do that easy um, um, renewal with the with the upside, you know, with the, the little upgrade that is aligned to it. So anyway, laying that out and identifying what jobs are responsible for what motions and doing that by segment, you know, SMB and strategic, they may be very different um, in, in terms of how you want that um, that um, sales journey to map to the buyer journey and what jobs you want involved. That makes a lot of sense. And, and it brings a lot of clarity, I think, one for the, the reps and really understanding what they're supposed to do, yes. what pieces they're responsible for and how they're compensated. Right. And one size doesn't fit all. So maybe if you're a brand new company and it's your first sales rep, maybe they do all of that. But certainly right. as you grow, then those roles and responsibilities separate and, and should have different comp plans, although sometimes yeah. they don't. Yeah, exactly. That's that's uh, one point of failure we sometimes see, see is the company has evolved and there's multiple roles and jobs, yet there's still one single sales compensation plan design. Um, and so obviously you need to align the plan. So like one of the rules of them we have is the number of plans you have should be aligned to the number of jobs you have. Um, now it's, a, it's a general rule, uh, cause many times we'll go into a client and we'll do, you know, we'll look at by segment, the I layer and we'll map all the jobs. And it just turns out your enterprise AE has the exact same roles and responsibility as your commercial AE. And so therefore they end up being on the exact same plan. Maybe they're different, obviously different pay levels, but the plan design is still a 50, 50 pay mix. It's still, um, you know, new ACV, maybe a multi-year bonus, you know, things like that. So, um, but yeah, you definitely want to look um, at the beginning of your plan design cycle or even your go-to-market um, planning cycle. What you want to do is really kind of reflect on your jobs and what you want these people to be doing, what behaviors are you trying to drive, um, and making sure those map to your corporate goals, obviously. And then that makes it so much easier when you go into sales compensation plan design, um, because you already have identified and documented um, those behaviors you're asking those sellers to do. And that's really what you want the compensation to be tied to is right. driving those behaviors. Yeah. Now, I will say this, this is another challenging area for technology companies is if you think about it, particularly with recurring revenue companies, which I know many of the listeners are, um, <clears throat> there's so many different activities or I guess kind of sales motions you're going to or sales initiatives that you want to drive. There's the new logo acquisition. There's expansion. And expansion, like I said, can have different, you know, different products and things to that nature, um, as well as just your, you know, increasing your current subscription user base. 
there's the renewal. Um, you might have one-time services that you're trying to sell, implementation services or training. You also, if you're, um, you might uh, compensate on ACB, but then how do you treat two-year deals, three-year deals, maybe even five-year right. deals. So there's the multi-year component. Um, what else is there? There's uh, Those are kind of the, the key things that we see. And so if you think about all those things I mentioned, that could be seven measures in your plan. <laughs> um, and we, that's definitely what we call a Frankenstein plan. And so we have a big rule that no more than three main measures in your plan. So if you take, think about the target incentive, and you're um, allocating it against um, a measure, uh, what we call weighted measures, um, you want no more than three. And if you can get by with one, actually that's golden. Um, we'd recommend that. Um, and then what we have in uh, technology companies is a lot of what I call non-weighted measures. So these are the add-on bonuses. So you have an AC, you know, 100% uh, new business ACV plan, and then you do a multi-year bonus. Um, you know, to recognize and reward them for landing a two or three year deal. And then maybe you have a, a product credit uplift. Oh, you landed this new product. So you get a credit uplift. So there's bonuses there are credits uplifts. I've even seen credit downlifts for, um, for PS or services. Um, I also see add on bonuses for maybe renewals. Well, they helped out with the renewals. So I can give them a little, a little bonus for that or an add on bonus for PS. So it gets really complicated. And, and what we're seeing, a lot of our technology um, clients um, have a lot of these add-on measures. And so going back to that conversation of what percent of your folks are achieving quotas. So like I said, we see like 35% achieving quota. But if we look in the data, actually 50 or 60% of them are achieving their target incentive. And so there's this big discrepancy between the quota attainment and the the pay attainment, if you will, uh, the payout attainment, you know, their target incentive attainment. So, um, so you have to be careful. Um, you need to think about how to measure all those different um, sales behaviors, but you also need to make sure that you're not overcomplicating or driving issues with the sales compensation plan and your quota setting process, right? So, so we would recommend that if they're um, with these add-on bonuses, that they be um, at least uh, less than 10% of the target incentive, if lower. Uh, sometimes we see that a lot higher. Um, and you could think about other ways to do it, which would be a credit uplift, or you can even do some sort of accelerator hurdle, meaning, you know, your accelerator is 2x, but if you land four more new logos, it's 4x or something like that, or you land, um, you know, you do, you hit your renewal bucket, then it's, you know, 4x or something like that. So you can do different um, things in the plan. That being said, we want to make sure that you don't overcomplicate it. At the end of the day, you want to make sure that the plan is simple, easy to understand. And so a lot of times when we work with our clients, what we're trying to help them think about is what can you measure with performance management and perform, right? As opposed to baking everything in the sales compensation plan. Let's keep the sales compensation simple. Um, but think about um, our managers and how we want our managers to manage our sellers and have that part of the performance management program. Um, which I know is hard when you're a startup and you're getting started and you don't, you know what I mean? You can't, you don't have time to think about performance management. But eventually when you scale, that's definitely something you want to think about. I think it's important to think about in the beginning because if it gets too complicated, especially small, yeah, it, yeah. it's much more difficult to manage. Yes. But yeah. I, I think it's fascinating that the, the reps, even if they're at 35, 40% of their quota, they're finding these other add-ons to get up there where their on-target earnings yeah. are where they're supposed to be. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we help them um, kind of rein in those costs <laughs> with a lot of our clients and think about, okay, what, what can we bake into the, the, the target incentive um, so that we, um, we don't have all these add-on um, bonuses and things of that nature. Our one client, I think they had 10, 10 different on-top bonuses that wow. people could earn. Yeah. It's got a little bit out of control. Um, their plan was simple. <laughs> there was all these credit uploads and bonuses and things like that that was uh, driving uh, cost and uh, you know cost to get out of whack. Just tracking that seems uh, exhausting. 
Yeah, yeah. So obviously, um, well, and even uh, it's interesting in the uh, sales compensation incentive calculation um, software industry, right? Um, uh, SPM, sales performance management, or uh, EIM, enterprise incentive management. Um, that industry has grown quite a bit, and there's been a lot of new players that have come on on board the last three or four years. Um, so what they've seen is some of the the players who've been around for a while are just, it's, it's overly complicated and hard to manage. So there's, um, so there's quite a new players that I think some that are pretty uh, reasonably priced that I think a lot of startup companies can look into. With those tools, do they bring uh, suggestions for how to compensate? Or is that something, I mean, have you seen that a lot where you take, somebody takes a plan from one company and tries to port it over? I've tried that. And, and use it in another one? Yeah, that is actually the, one of our number one mistakes that we see clients do. Um, and it's so funny, I, you know, we'll work with a client and I'll go, wait, wait, where is that leader from? <laughs> and then I'll like, oh, <laughs> that plan looks exactly like where, where they came from. Um, That's really funny. It's a really, really bad idea because every company is unique. It's got its own reward philosophy or pay philosophy. It's got it. It's in its own um, stage of maturity. Um, right, uh, startup versus you know more, more mature companies, um, and they even though they might be in the same industry sector or subsector, uh, they usually have a different product portfolio. They may even have different pricing models. So, um, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about consumption models. That is, consumption pricing models are on the rise, and all the recurring revenue companies, and even I would the the um, you know the hardware companies are now getting into consumption pricing models because now they realize um, oh shoot AWS was renting their infrastructure I could do that too um, although we're going to rent it on prem so it's it's just um, and then and the client will pay for what they use which is a lovely you know pricing model well how great is that like I'm not paying for paperware I'm paying for actually what I use so um, yeah so it's on the rise so we're seeing a lot of um, 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 companies changing their pricing model or evolving it. And so that actually has a big impact on your sales compensation measures. Um, so we're big believers on pain for persuasion. And so what that, that means is you pay for the persuasion activity. And in a subscription world, it's pretty easy. It's the ACV or it used to be TCV, but everybody's sort of landed now on ACV with some sort of multi-year um, bonus or credit right. uplift or something like that to recognize and reward the longer-term deals. But um, but in the consumption model, if it's pure consumption, no no committed contract upfront, you kind of have to pay on the ongoing revenue. So maybe you have some sort of bonus upfront on the contract land um, to reward that persuasion activity, but um, but the job role is very different. Remember, I was saying the adopt, the expand, the renew happens, you know, all concurrently. So right. you land the customer, but then once you get them going, you're adopting, and that's driving billings and revenue, and you want to pay on on that ongoing persuasion. So. The persuasion is is very different in um, consumption based pricing models and subscription. It definitely is. And keeping plans simple, we want to make sure that we're communicating those right because we're trying to drive behavior. Ultimately, how successful are, are most companies in in explaining their comp plan where the reps get it and they understand what they're supposed to do and how they're paid? Yeah, so um, it's mixed out there. Um, with some of our clients, we do see they have hired people from maybe, um, you know, other companies, either sales ops or HRP, depending on who owns the sales compensation plan. <laughs> um, but they have hired people from other companies who've had experience with the communications or even from uh, consulting firms, right? So they'll hire like an HR person from who had the experience in some sort of consulting firm. And so they'll be very good and, and know that it's so important to communicate effectively. Um, but a lot of other companies don't, unfortunately. And um, the communication kind of falls down. And, and you ask a seller or even a manager how they're paid and they start telling you things. And you're like, hmm, that doesn't <laughs> map to what I see on this page. And, um, and so there's a lot of confusion out there. So, um, yeah, even the best design plan, if you fail on the communication, you've failed on your plan design, right? So, um, that is extremely important. Yeah. Reps definitely need to understand it in order to 
to, to know what they're supposed to do yeah. or how they're, they're measured. Right. And that's actually one of the benefits of some of these incentive compensation calculation um, software uh, vendors that you can purchase these days, right? Because they usually attach into SFDC or Dynamics or whatever CRM system you're using. You click on the button, you go and you can even play, a lot of times you can play what if scenarios, like if I land this deal, throw it in, like how am I going to get paid? So having that real-time visibility into your performance actually helps out when the calculations are happening at the end of the month because you can you can correct things. Oh, I didn't get credit for this um, before the payout cycle as opposed to post-payout cycle. Um, so there's huge advantages of that. And then also just having the sellers understand um, you know, how they're going to get paid and, and um, you know, how different deals will translate into a specific payment. That's a, a long, long way from the, the old days of spreadsheets. Yeah. And, and, or, or even well, paper forms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, if you don't have a, a calculation tool or, you know, um, and your plan is, if your plan is super easy, it's just a simple commission rate, then no problem to make a dude on the back of the napkin. But if you've got all these uplifts and, and bonuses and different measures, you definitely need some sort of calculator tool to give your sellers because otherwise they're going to create their little Excel spreadsheet themselves. Uh, I've seen that multiple times. Yeah. Where if you don't do it, they're actually pricing the, the deals and trying to figure out, you know, how do I do this and maximize my compensation? Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you want them to um, to do that. You want them to figure out how to maximize their comp, but you also want to make sure when they're doing that, it's aligned to your goals. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, and they're not kind of cheating their way through it, right? Discounting the thing that they're paid on the, the least and, and marking something else up that... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So do you see that a lot where there's pricing games that are being played or are they're pricing things too high or too low or you know trying to win deals by pricing them low? Yeah, we do see that um a bit. Although gosh, five or six years ago the industry did move from TCV to ACV. So TCV was very um challenging. Well, there's still a couple a couple of few companies, I'd say 90% plus are on the ACV measurement now, but um the big justification to, to move from total contract value to annual contract value was the fact that the term lengths would vary. And if you have varied term lengths, it's hard to set a, a quote of, um, you know, because what you do is you say, okay, the average deal value is 100K. We expect 100, you to sell 100 deals and the average term length is 2.3, whatever. And so that lands you to like a $2.3 million quota or whatever. Um, but then all of a sudden somebody says, oh, I, um, or somebody is able to, to land more three-year deals or four-year deals than the average. And so they're blowing out their quota, but they're not actually bringing a net new recurring revenue. Net, net ARR into the firm. Right. And so that's kind of why the industry has sort of gone towards just an ACV as a primary measurement. Now, there's a few companies that I have, I call kind of an MCV measure. It's a monthly committed, <laughs> committed contract value, but it's, or so they usually call it an MRR, but most companies are using the ACV measure. Um, and it's to um, ensure that the sellers aren't just way discounting out those out years so that they can get that full TCV value. And then there's um, um, obviously cost um, issues with that as well. Right, right. Yeah, I think ACV makes a lot more sense because that, that other revenue is, is out there two, three, four, five years. Yeah. Sometimes longer. Yeah. And it makes uh, the quota setting a lot easier, right? You don't have to worry about that term length. So as we're looking at simplifying the comp plans, you mentioned, you know, some of them, you know, seven, eight, ten different variables. How do you pick whether it's the the one big variable you want in there or the, the one factor or if it's, you know, you said no more than three. How do you choose which of those to focus on? And does it change? Oh yeah, it changes all the time. <laughs> as the strategy <laughs> changes, as the company changes, and you know, with today all the M and A, right? People's portfolios are getting bigger, and so next thing you know, you need to put a product focus measure in the plan. And he might start out with a spiff, and then it becomes a hurdle, and then oh, we got to pull it out as a secondary measure. So what we're big believers in is keep the weighted measures um, one to three, 
And then the non-weighted measures try to keep those down and non-weighted meaning these bonuses, these credit uplifts or these hurdles, try to keep those to roughly three or as well. And then anything else, just performance managed. Um, or it might be something you offload to another resource, right? Like you may say, oh, our renewals, we're going to offload that to our renewal rep. That makes sense. Um, just to, to be very specific, what, what we tend to do is you bring together a design team that includes finance, sales, sales ops, um, and HR, and um, you dialogue about it. You know, what's the most important thing we want these people to do? And that becomes the weighted measures. What are some of the secondary things? Those become the non-weighted measures. Um, and you have a dialogue about it because there's, there's definitely trade-offs. So. I think that's really helpful having that input from other other departments, other team members, and because they not only have influence, they're also impacted by what happens in sales. Exactly, exactly. Could be special deals or, or you know little side things here or there. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, things that they want to focus on that, that that matter to them make their life easier or harder. Right, right. Yeah. So HR would want to make sure the plan design aligns to the reward philosophy. Um, and then finance, obviously, uh, make sure the plan aligns to the financial goals, um, as well as maybe some of the contracting, the pricing terms that they're um, looking to drive or even product oriented financial goals. Um, and then sales ops, obviously, needs to be there to make sure it aligns to what they can track and measure. <laughs> we don't want any what we call wishful thinking measures. Right, um, right. And then you have, obviously, the sales leader needs to make sure that it aligns to the sales growth goals that they're trying to drive that have been directed to them from, you know, the C-staff, from the CEO and the board. So in rolling out a new plan, I don't know that most reps are really excited about that. It happens, you know, every year or two. And that rolling that out, how is that best communicated in that, you know, it, it's something that's going to be beneficial for them or, or beneficial for the, the company or it. It, it, it always seems like it's it's pushed out and this is going to be really good for you, but there's a lot of skepticism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and here's kind of an expression I like to use, commit to the money, but not the mechanics. So what we mean by that is commit to your sellers that you're going to provide market competitive pay, or like I said, above market competitive pay, you know, whatever your reward philosophy is, as well as market competitive upside. But you need to make sure that they know and most technology sellers have been through this. You go to other industries where they don't change their plans for years and years. It's completely different. It's foreign to them. But most technology sellers are used to the plan evolving and changing as the strategy and the orgs changing and you're specializing your roles and whatnot, right? So as we all know specialization leads to or um, typically leads to higher productivity. So yeah, so um, so when it comes to communication, obviously we're big believers that um, you needed to use a change management communication approach. So cascade from the top down, like you can't just tell the sellers and not tell their manager. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, like, there's going to be a complete disconnect. Manager, what? Were you getting paid on that? So you need to make sure it's, you know, all the key stakeholders are involved in the design process that they've been communicated first. And then it goes down through the management chain. Then you, um, when you get to the to the sellers or even to everyone, the communications to strategy should be, you know, all right, what what's changed, what stayed the same, and then with regard to what's changed, if there's anything that if it's just more of alignment changes, you know, be upfront with that. We're not trying to change the pay, we're not trying to decrease costs, um, but sometimes we're doing um, transformational changes where we we do want. To, for example, reduce pay on some of these older core products that are not profitable and increase pay on the newer products. So think about hybrid companies moving to recurring revenue models, right? Right. So um, so you need to communicate the wins and the losses. Like, um, and that, and actually I always do that as part of the design process. So for example, we're taking away this bonus. That's a loss for the rep. You know, think about the wins and losses from a rep standpoint, but we're gonna add this. Um, you know, a richer accelerator rate for those that overachieve, right? So, so kind of, you know, have the the, the gives and, and takes and make sure that you clearly communicate that to the, the sellers because they're going to figure it out. And they so do. it's best to be upfront <laughs> <laughs> and say, I guess I know we're taking this away, but here's what we're giving you, right? So um, that I think is the, the best approach to use. 
So where do you land on capped or uncapped compensation? Oh, a good question. Um, we're big believers, no cap, right? Um, the last thing, I mean, when you're uh, trying to attract top talent, they're going to want to see that. Um, however, if you do have challenges setting quotas, which a lot of companies do, meaning that mm, we may not, like, we're going to be pretty accurate, but we may, there may be some big mega deals that might happen this year and somebody might be able to blow it away like four times their quota or something like that, what you'll need to do is at least have some sort of policy statement that will say, hey, management re uh, reserves their right to review mega deals, you know, that are worth at least one time your quota or something like that and um, determine the right payout. So that can be something that you could put in from a policy standpoint. Otherwise, if it happens pretty frequently, these mega, these big payouts or wow, the seller really penetrated this territory and blew out their quota. Again, it becomes, well, we didn't really set our quotas accurately. So we're big, big believers in to put what we call decelerator rates in the plan. Um, and so what that would mean is, you know, for example, your, your, your accelerator rate goes, you know, 2x above quota. But then once you hit like 200% of your quota, it goes back down to 1.5. So um, the nice thing about doing a decelerator rate in the plan, it's still, it's still an, ex and we don't communicate it usually as a decelerator. We usually communicated as like rate two or rate three. <laughs> so right. it's, we want to make sure it's still an accelerator rate. It doesn't go back to one X or something like that, which they can just say, oh, I'm going to hold my deals to the next year, you right. know, to get one X as I go. <laughs> the next that happens. Period. Yeah. And as I think about, you know, my next quarter, my next year where I could just get up to my target center, but it's just not at that very, very rich rate because the accelerator rate is put there to to incent sellers to overachieve on their quota and really earn the big bucks. But at the end of the day, like if they blow it out, like that's, um, you know, uh, you know, you can overpay your sellers and then also it can end up being a big cost issue for the company. So you want to be, you want to manage those, those big blowout um, payouts, um, but still provide um, and send it to the sellers to keep selling when you have maybe some quota in, in um, uh, quota uh, concerns. Yeah, that, that does happen. And, and having that, the language in there, I think is helpful. Had that situation come up uh, one company ago, and it was kind of one of those where it was a mega deal that came in. And then everybody's wondering because, you know, we just won this giant whale. And uh, are we going to go back and change sales compensation now? Um, or, you know, what are we going to do? And I wrote an $880,000 check for one month, sales compensation. And, and But that really motivated everybody that this is the real deal, that you know, we can go sell, we can make anything we want to. Yeah. So, but it's really interesting just thinking about that. Are they going to be motivated? Or are they just going to be, you know, lazy now? Like I, I've already made it. Yeah, Jeff, you bring up a really good point, especially if it's like Q1 and they have the rest of the year, they're going to like sit down. But one thing that I always tell people is you have to be careful if you overpay your seller and they don't feel that they can earn that much the next year, they're going to start believing that's how much they're worth. And then, and if you can't give them that pay the next year, they're going to go try to go somewhere else to get it. So there's um, a real kind of turnover risk by overpaying and you have to have really good management um, my husband, by the way, is a head of sales, um, and he's told me multiple times that he's had to have communicate uh, conversations with sellers. You know, you're not going to be able to earn this next year. I just want to let you know your quota is going up. This is, you know, you got it. You know, congratulations, you got a great whale of a deal, and we're really happy <laughs> for you. But you have to have that frank conversation and say, you know, you're not going to be able to earn that anywhere else. So, you know, we're going to have to, you know, make sure that your um, that or your goals are reflecting the potential in your territory, and that you're paid, you know, handsomely, right? You've got the, you know, you got the market competitive pay. So, you really have to manage that. Yeah, it's really, I think it's a good problem to have, but it also, you're right, it is something that needs to be managed and communicated well. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. those expectations, it's not realistic, you know, to, to hit a home run every time you're up at bat. It just, yeah. Know, it, yeah. it doesn't always happen that way. No, it doesn't. And then, but one thing that is interesting in the tech industry, I don't know if other industries do this, but it's very common when we work with a project, um, a leader will say, I need my plan to create a million dollar rep because they, you know, and it's not, 
I mean, sometimes I've been there and it's been two and $3 million. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) that's that's overpayment. But they want to be able to like showcase the million dollar rep to everyone else and use that as a recruiting tool. Now, not every company does this, but and so what we do is we look at historical um, performance levels and then we look at the accelerator rates and we we create them so that uh, they, they could have a million dollar rep and they can manage that. And then obviously we curtail it after that so they don't become the two and the three million dollar rep. Um, so maybe it's 1.1 or 1.2 million. That's fine. <laughs> um, and, and also make sure it's just, your, you know, the 1% or 2% of the population hits that, right? It's not, it's not everyone. So, um, and I don't know. I mean, that's, again, a, a reward philosophy that some companies have. So, and then given with um, today's OTE levels, right? Like a software seller, I think, um, you know, used to be, 260 to 300 but I'm seeing like some some of these very senior software sellers make make even more than that so um and if you think about a 50 50 pay mix so let's just take 300 that's um 150 what we typically and target center which what we typically see is a the 90th percentile performer should earn three times their target incentive so let's see. So if you have 150 times three, that's 450 plus 150. So that's about 600K. So that's definitely not the million dollar rep, but um, that should be where your 90th percentile performer should be earning. At least that's in our, our database that we track is that 3X leverage for the um, 90th percentile performer. Um, and then you'll have some people who will go above that. Yeah, that's really, really good to, to just have that benchmark. I think yeah. that's what a lot of people want to know is just, you know, what what should those targets be? And, and we've seen compensation just all over the map where, you know, it's it's high salary or sometimes low salary and huge, huge bonus, huge commission. Mm-hmm. We've seen the 50-50. Uh, we've seen some where on-target earnings are you know pretty close to seven figures. And is it mm-hmm. realistic? Who knows? But that's what the company is is pitching their reps, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me for the, um, in the software industry, the, the, um, the AE, the average pay mix is, is definitely 50, 50. So, um, so you're seeing some companies sway away from that. That's interesting. That's uh, yes. pretty uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> and you never know whether it's, you know, if you're getting 40% quota attainment, they can say anything and they're not going to pay it out anyway. Right. So you never really know what what is the the real compensation. How does it how does it work in the real world? Yeah, right. Because um, if yeah, if not enough people are achieving their goals, then they won't be achieving that target amount. Um, or if it's a walk in a park goal, they'll be blowing that amount out. So, right. um, and that's definitely. I mean, a lot of times, what I hear at least, and smart sellers will ask that question: What does the top performer typically make? Um, what percent of your folks typically hit their goals, right? They'll, they'll ask those types of questions. So it's good to have that data and, and be aligned to the market. So is there something, uh, a magic solution to knowing whether a rep is going to be productive and, and make quota? Or is it just kind of roll the mm. dice and, and hope past performance or what they, at least they tell you what past performance is, you know, is indicative of future performance? Yeah, the whole recruiting engine. Um, gosh, I don't know. I would say do your due diligence and um, check out their references. I think that's really <laughs> the best <laughs> way to determine whether or not you're you're gonna. This is a winner, and you really want to hire them, or if they're um, blowing smoke. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sometimes that the best sale they make is in the interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, salespeople <laughs> always sell. That's what I um, like. Uh, I always talk about quota relief. You have to be careful giving quota relief because the sales, if they get wind that you do that as a practice, they're going to sell you <laughs> why they need a lower quota, uh, why right. they need relief. So, yeah, salespeople, that's what they're good at. It's been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about you and about the Alexander Group online? Oh, sure. Um, So you can definitely reach us on our website, alexandergroup.com. We've got articles, we've got um, other podcasts, um, webinars that you can look at there. Um, You can also feel free to reach me, Rachel Perinello, on LinkedIn. I'm happy to chat with anyone further if they have any specific questions. 
Excellent. And there's so much great resources, so many great resources and research on the site. I mean, it's, it's a great, great site. You guys do a really good job. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah, we have um, a pretty big group of consultants that are working on sales compensation plans all the time. We do more, by the way, than just sales comp plan design. That's about 40% of our business and how we got started. But um, a lot of our clients come to us with sales coverage, sales strategy, sales segmentation, uh, territory design issues. And uh, so we do all those um, types of initiatives as well. So that's fantastic. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes for sure. Sounds great. Thank you. I appreciate it, Jeff. And thanks again for your time. This is fun. It's great talking with you. Thanks, Rachel. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks again, Rachel, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and wisdom. I'll tell you, it is super helpful to have someone at your level who advises SaaS giants to share with us your research and specifically what is working today in pricing and sales compensation. All links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. We'll also link the study that Rachel referenced there as well. While you're there, subscribe or follow us on whatever platform you love and be sure to check out our new YouTube channel as well. Long form and short form content there. Everyone who subscribes this week gets an inflatable pricing strategy dartboard so you can enjoy a round of target practice while determining your next pricing model. Join us next week, Tuesday, Independence Day, where our founder is Charles Darrow, CEO and co-founder of Bzop. You heard it right, Bzop. It's a process management software. If you want freedom as a founder or leader, it all starts with solid processes. And they're doing some really, really cool things. There's a unique story as well. And on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series next Thursday, we have Nicholas Means. Nicholas loves nothing more than the great story of engineering triumph except for maybe a story of engineering disaster. But he leads an engineering team at SIM, and they help create the building blocks for engineering teams need to build delightful, just-in-time access workflows. It's a great discussion. So much personality and unexpected twists and turns in that episode. So I will see you next week. Happy American Independence Day. Happy July 4th. And as always, get out there, have some fun, go celebrate, barbecue, shoot some fireworks off. Celebrate freedom and enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.